You're listening to the Versus Node podcast, presented by GamerNode.com. Welcome to episode 33 of the Versus Node podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Inzotto, editor-in-chief of GamerNode.com, and I'm here once again with the crew, Jason Finelli, Yo! Anthony LaBella. Hello. Dan Crabtree. Hey, yo. And Mike Murphy. Hey. What's up, guys? Not a whole lot. I'm ready to be happy. Okay, awesome. <laughs> I'm ready to be happy. Yeah, me too. Our last podcast was our most overrated games of the console generation ranging from 2005 to the present day the xbox 360 ps3 and Wii primarily uh so now we're back and we're going to give you our most underrated games of the generation as we draw closer and closer to the xbox one and ps4's impending releases um we did explain our criteria for underrated games, but uh, let's just quickly comment one more time about how we're going to choose our underrated games. So just real quick, Anthony, how do you, how do you choose your underrated games? So uh, quite a few of my underrated picks involved a lot of cult classics or, or ones that had a, a certain amount of fans but didn't necessarily sell a lot. So there are a few on my list that also didn't receive a whole lot of critical acclaim, so that's definitely a factor. But but I primarily looked at games that didn't necessarily didn't necessarily sell well or appeal to a lot of people. You only would have small groups who played it. I felt like. Okay. How about you, Jason? Um, whereas with the overrated games, I talked about the games that I didn't particularly care for, but everybody around me in my retail experience like gushed over. This time, these are games where the people around me weren't really it's the exact opposite people weren't really into these games the numbers support most of them they didn't sell very well or do very well critically with the exception of a few but um i could not stop playing them any okay. of them all right dan same thing something different it's essentially the same i i don't really ever go by the amount of sales and i i have no idea what the metacritic score is for any of these games prior to Eddie sending them to me. So yeah. I, I go based off of the jargon and the, the conversation that I hear thrown around having to do with these games, which mostly happens online yeah. between other game critics. So take, take that for what it is. That's a pretty insular group, <laughs> pretty hive mind kind of group of folks who play lots of video games. So Right. And how about you, Mike? Uh, it's pretty much the same as all these other guys said. Uh, basically games that I played that I really loved or thoroughly enjoyed and they either really didn't sell as well as they perhaps I wanted them to or should have or also games that say people that I talk to be that my friends or or whatnot uh, played and didn't really like or just never got around to playing because they never because there wasn't huge hype about the game. Mm. Yeah, for me, for me, it didn't really come down to sales because it's not something that I really look into. Although, for the most part, the sales numbers end up backing the fact that I, I consider it underrated because people weren't talking about it, because people weren't playing it, and critics weren't recommending it. And, you know, I, I hear a lot from critics as well online, Twitter sphere, all that stuff. 
and um, you know, I definitely take notice when people are hating on a game that I really like. And when I do really like a game, perhaps I'll go and see uh, what others think of it, and then get kind of upset when I see you know something rated very very poorly for its uh, average meta score, which I also only really went and looked up now today um, in preparation. But um, so that's that's where we're going. Uh, be prepared for us to gush and love and uh, all that good stuff, all the best things you want to see. Lots of positivity today. Let's start with an interesting case, and we're going to let Anthony introduce this one as a oh, segue gosh. from last show. So all these positive uh, thoughts, channel them because I'm going to not be positive because uh, <laughs> the rest of the staff. Ladies and gentlemen, they love Mafia 2. I do not. And I think I think it's two main things that ruin this game for me. It's you it's really only these them, two things. Right? Or one kind oh. of one thing. Fired. thing about this game. It's these things, and I think I might be falling into the Dan trap, but you are presented with this open world, or some semblance of an open world. You are allowed to do basically nothing in it. Go from point A to point B, do your mission. And that also ties into the fact that I felt like I was driving in that game for about 75% of the game. Obviously, I'm being hyperbolic, but there's a lot of driving in that game. Just driving to your next location. And in between, you're doing nothing, really. Or at least I don't remember doing anything. I think you could collect magazine covers or something. That's about it. I did, there were no side activities. There, there was no real reason to explore the world. So that kind of ruined it all for me. It was putting this smaller game in an open world setting, and I didn't want any part of that everything else was fine about it but that ruined it for me okay. so the dan trap so you've fallen into the dan trap now let's dan trap. let's now hear why yeah. jason dan and mike all listed mafia 2 a game rated at 75 percent metascore and uh, selling 2.94 million copies was an underrated game well so and and what you said is the exact reason that I think it is a great game. One of the reasons I think it's a great game uh, is because they put so much stinking time and effort into creating an open world that is not for the purpose of exploring, which I, I get that. I get that it's like against your nature as someone who has played Grand Theft Auto, as someone who has played Oblivion, uh, any other open world game. They're all built to be filled with good things for you to find in each shop, and um, and that's clearly not the case in Mafia 2, right? The open world is there to serve the narrative, which is, uh, as, as narratives are, linear. It's A to B. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that there's too much driving in that game. I, they could do with less. Um, but aside from there being too much driving... I think it's such a strength of that game to have an open world setting for a linear narrative. Um, I, th I think it, it does defy how most folks want to approach it, right? Because you, you want it to be a GTA. You want there to be all these interesting side missions and rewarding uh, subplots and things like that. Uh, but they, they actually have like a really great, compelling story to tell. It's really well written, really well voice acted, 
and and that's that's what's important to them and so they tell it it spans what five six years something like that um bunch of different seasons locations that super true to the the time period um and you know the only thing i don't like about it is that it left a huge cliffhanger that it seems like they're not going to um wrap up i mean we haven't heard about a mafia three yet at least so uh aside from that though what an incredible story super supported by that open world structure um not in a typical way in a very atypical way and i think that's that's sort of the linchpin is you have to approach it differently you have to appreciate the game for what the game is trying to do not for what you would like to impose on it which the in and then that sort of gets into the argument of you know who who makes the decision about the game is it the gamer or the designer which i think is a valuable discussion maybe not super relevant here but um even even in justifying that that particular um i don't know convention i think that that's an awesome thing way to go Mm -hmm. I think that uh, basically Empire City was meant more to be a, a character and a, a character more than a playground. Um, it's a good way to you, put it, yeah. Yeah, uh, basically, you're when you're driving around, you get to see all the different neighborhoods. When you start out, um, you're in essentially what was like Little Italy, basically in New York in the in the in the forties and the fifties. And you see, like you know, the the ter- the bad situation, the the shitty um, like living situation and neighborhood that it is. It's quaint and it's nice, but you get a real feel for what it's like to be in Vito's uh, situation at that time, just by driving through, seeing all the people going about their business, hearing the music, and I feel like. That was a that was a much better way to get a sense of where you are and where Vito is, and by showing him showing the world that's around him in an open way, than just doing like say cutscenes and action cutscenes and action cutscenes and action. Um, and that's that I thought ended up being a strength. And Mafia Two knew that they wanted to tell a good story, so why would they? spend time away from focusing on making such a good narrative just to throw in some side missions to add a couple hours uh, to gameplay for people. It clearly wasn't the point and the focus of the game, and it, it I think it shined. It benefited from the fact that they didn't want to deviate from their focus. I mean, mm. so the argument that I would use here is take whatever your one of your favorite... Uh, narrative-driven games. Uh, what's what's a good example? Well, like a Metal Gear Solid. How about that? Okay. Okay. So, uh, so we were talking about how great Metal Gear Solid Four is. <laughs> okay. So, so take that and put it in an open world. Are are you not more excited about that game now because there's just an entire world supporting the 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 singular path that that the story lies on. I think that's an incredible thing that, I mean, I think it shows a lot of maturity and development to say, I'm going to put all this time into something that like 1% of players are going to actually see. And, but every player is going to appreciate as like a, Hey, this is a supporting structure uh, that undergirds everything else. 
in some sense, that's kind of insane, but I do see your point. But like, if I were a developer, I, I, I'd feel crazy pitching to my supervisors. Okay, let's implement this thing that one percent of players will actually, you know, immerse themselves in or or explore. Sure. But some people might appreciate it by the end of it. Right. Well, and and <laughs> I I might be giving it the benefit of the doubt too. Right. Sure. They they do have like a couple of side missions, like hey, go race cars or like steal cars. Right. That sort of seem to imply that 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 was not the intention, but I'm just gonna go ahead and ignore those and pretend <laughs> that they pretend that they, you know, were doing everything in service of of the the main narrative, which which I really enjoyed. I, I loved that he had a real trajectory that you know had this story. Yeah, was, you yeah know, I'm he not was away. in World War Two, and then stuff, yeah. then he was a street thug. Then he goes to prison. Then he's back out. And, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful. Really and, well and he never and you know it's also great. He never becomes spoiler alert. Never becomes the don. Sure. It's it's never like, hey, you're the top dog. It's just right. a, it's a story about the guy story, who uh, has a yeah. tough time with his his friend who also has a tough time. Mm. Mm-hmm. His okay. friend actually is one of the reasons I like it so much because I've never really cared about a sidekick as much as I care about Joe. Yeah, Joe is great, isn't he? Joe Barber Joe is, is one the of the greatest man. characters this generation, in my opinion. I agree. I absolutely <laughs> agree. Just everything about him is classic gangster, tough guy movie sidekick, and I love him. And yet at the love same him. time, he lives and dies uh, pretty much literally by the in, in, in this game uh, for Vito. He's yep. such a loyal and faithful and good friend to Vito. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Mm-hmm. Not at all. All right, so, so that was our little sort of argument. I thought that was an interesting way to start. But uh, let's move on to Jason's uh, next underrated game. All right. Well, I am going to start with the game that will probably fly in the face of the most of, of the part of the last podcast that got the most reaction. Um, hated Oblivion, loved Kingdoms of Amalur, loved it. I don't know because it had more of an action focus. I don't know if it played more because it was it played more of an arcadey game. That's some that's how somebody described it to me. I was talking to earlier. I mm. love that. Um, if it helps, I played twenty five to thirty hours of Oblivion. I beat Amalur with almost near one hundred percent completion in seventy five, and I can't I couldn't get enough of it. I, I thirty eight studios closing is one of the most horrible things that's happened to me in the past couple of years as far as gaming is concerned because I want more. I want more Amalur, please. I love... I, I don't even know why. I, I, this isn't normally my type of game, but I just could not stop playing. I was so immersed in the world and the, the characters and, and every, everything. Everything. See, I can't wait to get into Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. Um, it's like Fable Scrolls of War. <laughs> that, that's how I see it, and that's awesome. <laughs> Like that's just an awesome thing, and it it's gotten it's actually been fairly positive, eighty one percent and one point six four million copies. So not not really a great seller, and hence the reason the studio closed. Um, but yeah, it would be great if more people played it. And uh, you know, I'm one of those people. I I have the game, but I still haven't played more than just uh, a f- couple of hours in the beginning. Yeah, I'm the same. I need to give that game another chance because I liked what I was playing, but I only played I don't know three, four, five hours. I need to go back and actually sit down and play that game. Yeah, the problem is, like, 
going into it, you know that it's like this daunting task because you have to put right, so exactly. many hours. And I kind of I know that I want to like it, so I want to dedicate a good chunk of time to it. So I want to start it when I know that I'll have plenty of time to play a game like that. And you know, that happens a lot. That happens with Bethesda games. I still haven't really gotten yeah. deep into Skyrim. Same idea. If I didn't play Dark Souls this summer, it would have been Kingdoms of Amalur probably. That I would have like sat down and put the hours into and played. Yeah. But I'll have to wait now. So nobody hated that game, right? No. I didn't play it. I... You couldn't have hated it then. Yes, no but... I don't. <laughs> awesome. Um, so Dan, what's uh, what's an underrated game for you? Well, so one of them for me was Mafia 2, um, but another one I would say, uh, I think we already sort of lambasted the Call of Duty series post uh, the first Modern Warfare, but I really, really liked World at War, and I think it's an important game for a number of reasons. One, it was the first of the, uh, well, it was the first Call of Duty game that Treyarch made, I believe. Right. Um, They made three, didn't they? Well, so they've done the Black Ops games. Yeah, this is yeah. this is considered part of the Black Ops arc, I believe. Okay, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They folded it into the Black Ops arc okay. later. Um, but this was zombies. that's right. So this is the first game with the zombies. Um, they brought that in, uh, and it was the first game, the first Call of Duty World War II game uh, that was done with like the new engine. So this is you know. Now, instead of being relatively slow and blocky, everything is very fast and uh, arcadey, right, in the way that it is now, in the way that it sort of revolutionized uh, the modern military shooter. So then they brought that to World War II and did, like, a really incredible job balancing the weapons. If you, I played the, um, the multiplayer a ton back in the day. Really, really excellent. I, like, on par with the original, uh, I say original, with Modern Warfare. Um, and told a great story in in the context of World War II. Kiefer Sutherland hammed it up a bit. That's all right. I'm fine with that. Uh, but I, I think it gets a bad rap because it's sort of folded in now with Modern Warfare 2, Black Ops, which sort of became milquetoast, the, you know, a little forgettable mm-hmm. uh, after you did it so many times. But if I can think back to, oh, I don't remember what year it was, Surely it was a year or two after Modern Warfare 2008, 2009. It's 2008. Okay, 2008. When that came out, I mean, that was still an incredible game. They were still really climbing um, in terms of... And Battlefield hadn't caught up yet. Um, so so Call of Duty was still sort of the only player in that next echelon of, of first-person shooters. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with World at War. Like like you said, it was the first by Treyarch. It was it's the last World War Two Call of Duty. That's right, yeah. Um and there had only been a single modern one before it. So for four four games now, you've had nothing but modern after World at War. And I remember when it came out, people hated on it so much. And I remember hearing, Treyarch makes the crappy Call of Duties, and Infinity Ward makes the good ones. Yet, meanwhile, um, the game still had a uh, has a Metascore of 85%. You know, it sold 13.95 million copies. But there's always been this vibe about it, like, World at War sucks. And I don't well, know so, if you guys so that. So but... a big part of the argument was that the weapon, and uh, so I just sort of disagree with that. And yeah. bear with me for a moment because I'm going to get super into like the culture of this. 
<laughs> so the uh, the argument there was that the weapons were way too slow, basically, mm -hmm. that, that everything was cumbersome like Fez. It was just too fat, yeah. right? Um, uh, but I think that they did a fantastic job in taking sort of a historically accurate view of the weaponry, right? They're like, well, an M1 Garand doesn't fire that fast, so you, know, you have to – you have to click back the bolt lock on a Springfield or whatever to, to get it to shoot. Um, I think that they took that and they made it balance really, really well uh, against, mm. you know, like so the MP40 against, um, I don't know, whatever one, one of the other machine guns was. Like actually made sense even though they both fired relatively slow. Right. Um, and, and we're all over the place too. The recoil was insane. Right. So it was like, you had a different set of learning to do. Whereas like the modern warfare was more about, you know, get, get your gun, get your sight to the reticle on your enemy as fast as possible. This was more like, you got to kind of be in the right position and have the right weapon because not every weapon is going to do the same job. It's not a Swiss army knife. Right. Um, so it's a little bit more tactical in that way. And it, and that's why I think it was more successful, at least um, from a multiplayer perspective. Um, but clearly didn't get, get all the love. Did everyone play World at War when it came out? I did I for a little bit. Yeah. I, I feel like I everyone had. did, right? I feel like at the time it was just ubiquitous. It's like, of course, we're going to play the next Call of Duty, right? Only right. on the well, Wii. Which was stupid. No. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that. That's That's definitely dumb. Yeah. I um I played it uh, on 360 and I beat the campaign and that's all I wanted to do because I was a huge Jack Bauer fan and Kiefer Sullen. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna lie, but you I enjoyed it. it. Yeah, you made it happen. It was good. Yeah, I did enjoy it, but it you know, Call of Duty they all run together for me now, which I guess is a bad thing. All the same. But um. But this one I, had like multiple theaters of war. You it had did. Russia. You had the Pacific. I, I don't That's, think it had much of France, but... Mm. Yeah, I like the historical significance of these, whereas all the, the new ones are basically fiction. This one has some semblance of, of reality in the game. And uh -huh. like you said, with the weapons, that, that really rings true to me with, you know, manipulating these historical machines, whereas now it's just it's sort of soulless. Whereas that's what things. I, and that's why I really liked all. Even though I never played World at War, I kind of regret it because I always look back fondly on the old Call of Duties that had the World War II stuff because a lot of the battles were actually, or a lot of the campaign missions, at least in the early ones, were authentic, actual battles that took place. So it's like yeah. you're reliving history. Mm. Oh, you know, it was another thing that was great about it. They introduced uh, dogs as one of the killstreak perks. Oh. It was awesome. It was so good. Uh, I have but, a lot of people who would argue with you against that. I know, I know. They probably hate it. They probably <laughs> I, hate it. Oh, man, the attack dogs. It's amazing when you get it, but when you hear the barking from somebody else, you're just, <laughs> just like, shit. Oh, I, think that's so, I think that's so great. It's way better than, hey, get, you know, get in this chopper and start mowing down everyone who is a giant white square on the screen and you could you know or, or or hey guess what you've gotten enough kills that you can completely end the game by blowing everyone to hell <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so my next game is known for being horrible and oh, okay. yeah here we and go. <laughs> i love this game i thought it was very very enjoyable to play there was one thing that 
was horrible about it, which I fully and freely admit. The game is too human. It has a 67% meta score. It only sold 750,000 copies. And dying sucked worse than dying in most other games because of the Valkyrie that comes down and takes you up. And it takes, like, a minute to do this. Um, when you think about it, because you have to sit there and watch it, it becomes horrible. But when you think about it, if you had a game where it, like, kicked you out and you had to load back into the, the game from your last checkpoint, it would sort of balance out. But watching it was just kind of annoying. Um, I find that the game is best played if you if you think you're going to die. And you, you, you probably will, because it's not the easiest game. Having, like, a bowl of cereal there with you or something. So if you do die, you just put the controller down, eat, eat a couple bites, do the classic Jason. I'm going to go make a sandwich. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. But the game is very, very interesting in, in a number of ways. You know, the story is, uh, I won't say unique, but it uses, like, uh, Norse lore combined with a with a sort of futuristic like like transhumanist plot uh it, it's it's really tied together well um and it sets it up for a sequel for for multiple sequels it was supposed to be a trilogy and i got really into the the story um the combat was truly unique and it was manageable which people will tell you it wasn't and i actually became quite adept with the combat system, which was all tied, well, mostly tied to the the right analog stick, um, and y- you were able to attack in any direction at any time, sort of like a um, like a twin stick shooter, but in a third person action game, and you could do that. And you also had two guns, which you could aim separately at, at different enemies using your triggers. Plus, it had these ruiner attacks. It had tons of loot and gear like a ridiculous amount you could spec out your character very well with different sets with with tiers of rarity um there was depth in i think five character classes each with three skill trees or a skill tree with three branching paths um like i said tons of equipment you could go into this sort of other world to affect the world that you were playing in, and the pace was was done really well. It was sort of cut with flashbacks as you were progressing through these missions, and there were portions in between missions where you were in um, Asgard, and there there were these political overtones and, and a lot of philosophical stuff about you know becoming you know using um, like cybernetics. And that's part of what the two human title was. It just, it was such a good game to me, and it makes me sad that everyone is an idiot and didn't I like, feel like it. You're, ta- you're talking me into playing that game, and I feel like I missed out on a piece of video game history because I don't remember reading or hearing anything about Two Human. I have no idea why people hate that game. I've always kind of wanted to play it. I would love, so. wow, I would love for you to play it and love it. I mean, I know <laughs> nothing about why people hate that game. Honestly, not at all. Nothing. I'm blank slate. Tabula rasa. <laughs> Throw, me <in. laughs> Throw me in there. I, you know, I, I played the demo and it seemed like it was fun. I yeah, I think I, actually I think I played the demo and I remember liking it actually. So I don't know. I'll, maybe I should just play that game. Just get it and play it. See what happens. You, sh- I'm sure it's really cheap. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you for me. a dollar. Yeah, Jason or Mike, did either of you play it? I no. Did not. No. Was were you afraid to play it because of Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> that, is, the critic, the critical backlash underrated. was so bad that uh, I just stayed away from it. I will say that you are not the only person I know who has a fanatical obsession with that game. I, it's not a fanatical obsession. Well, well, not, it's you, not like Dark you would, Souls over here. Well, right, but you would defend it. Yeah. I know you're not the only person I know, but um I don't get it. Hmm. I never had any desire. Maybe we can just pass my copy of the game around to the whole gamer node stuff. <laughs> sure. Have it be a feature. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on. Mike, what's your first underrated game? My first underrated game uh, is one that I honestly, going into it, had no idea what to make of it, but it had buzz, so I decided to uh, to jump in, and I was highly surprised and very happy, and I ended up becoming like a champion about this game. I believe we we when the noties came up for this game at the end of the year, I was very very in favor of that game winning awards and that game is Catherine. Yes. yes. All right. All right. Sold pretty poorly. I remember writing the review for that one. Yeah, what'd you give it? But just uh, uh, I believe four out of five because I love the story so much. And that is exactly the way it's presented. That is exactly the meta score, eighty percent. But it only sold eight hundred thousand units. Yeah. Yeah. And I I was in love with the story. For uh, for Catherine, I thought it was a wonderful way to you know show the complexities of relationships, show how easy it is to become stale for long term relationships to become stale and stagnant, um, and how easy it is to be tempted. And it it, it was just watching, uh, watching everything go down. Just I really sympathized, and I could see myself like kind of ending up in the same situation and just being like all crazy, just not knowing what the hell to do. And the, the, the voice acting was incredible. I loved the acting in the game. I loved the, the cinematics. I loved the way that the, they graphically had even the gameplay look very uh, anime-ish and all that. And even though this, the story did take like a really weird, typical anime kind of twist, it's still the uh, the underlying themes and messages about you know relationships and all of, and ma- being mature about relationships and you know why do people cheat and all of that. It was I thought it was really great. And on top of that, it had some really fun, if not maddeningly aggravating uh, puzzles in it. Mm-hmm. Mm. See, I didn't really like the puzzles. But yeah, I wish those I... were a little bit easier. They're, <laughs> damn, they're hard. <laughs> But I, it, I loved every bit of that game from the first word to the puzzles to the, to the to the, every, all the little little uh, side stories too. Like when you go to the bar, stray sheep, and you can yeah. talk to all the people, yeah, and the people so that you good. talk to are the uh, people that are in the dream. And um, I love how you can order a different type of drink and get a different fact about that drink. <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. and then that's an achievement if you hear all the facts. Um. I, I loved it. I mean, it really, it was really the first Atlas RPG, not RPG, but like an anime game I really got into, and I, I loved it. I really, really did. It really took me by surprise. Um, 
I kind of want to play it again, actually. I know, I, I want to play it again now. I'm yeah. definitely going to play that one uh, again. I played it part way through, but the, the surreal nature of everything, of the night, whatever you want to call it, the dream world, is just incredible to me. Yeah. It's like that juxtaposition of these very, very real interactions between friends, you know, on you know day-to-day or night-to-night basis, and then his crazy, crazy sort of... Uh, injections of his life into this weird dream world. It's just so awesome. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully conceptualized. Mm-hmm. So excited. I'm going to play that again, like you guys. Even, even the little stuff, like the text message system that they had, was awesome. I feel like that game came out in a very uh, vulnerable time in my life. Um, it came out the summer after I proposed. So, like, oh, goodness. Any, any subliminal <laughs> worries that I were having... Not that I had really had any that I knew of, but any subliminal things that I was worried about as far as the whole married life thing was concerned were totally playing out in front of me. <laughs> Jason, yeah, does life man. begin or end at marriage? Right. right. And <laughs> that question, question is like the first one, right? <laughs> it's the first one I got. And yeah. I was like, um, is she watching? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but like, I, I, it, it, that, and that, that, that's kind of cool too. The whole, um, I don't know if you, is, is that, like, would you call that meta? That whole like asking the character, but asking you, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to understand meta. I hear <laughs> it so often. And I, I never know if I get it right or not. But yeah, like, like they're really just asking the character, "What do you think about this?" But they're, they're asking you, and then they tell you what other people thought, which is cool. They give you yeah. like a little chart. Oh right, yeah, I forgot about that. If you're, you're online, the morals of other people. Yeah. And, and it... eight endings is nuts. There are eight endings in that game, and like depending on how far to the blue or how far to the red you actually are when you in, when you end the game, um, and all of them, most of them are just incrementally different. But uh, the the biggest one, the the most like good blue, and the most good red. Like, I think it's true lovers or true. Uh, I don't Chaotic or whatever. Chaos. No, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's they like, like, call true lovers the good ending, the good good ending, and then there's a word it's true something. I can't remember what it is, but they're both ra- they're radically different. And the true lover, the true not the true lovers, the true other one, true cheaters maybe it is, is fucking crazy. If you've ever seen it, it's, oh, it's, yeah. an, it's anime oh, crazy yeah. taken to the oh man. Like, now I remember. Oh, it's back to me. Just takes mm-hmm. this whole fucking turn, and you're like. Down in hell, it's just it's nuts. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And yet, right. hell for him, for Vincent, is like a good thing in that in that ending. Right. <laughs> and I think one of the the, the best thing about Catherine, uh, this will be the last thing I'll say about it, is that it makes you think. And mm. not just not only does it make you think, but it makes you think about a topic and a subject that you would never imagine games to be able to communicate to you with and make you think about. Right. Like most video games, it's a typical. If there's anything love or romance, you just watch a love or romance play out, and it like these two people like each other, they don't like each other, ah, oh, they get together. But you never watch an a, an actual like relationship go through serious strains that happen to every everybody in the real world, and it raises questions and asks you, you know, what do you feel about all of this stuff? And it really makes you think and. It's just unbelievable, and uh, to me, at least before the game came out, that that a game could make you think about subjects like that. Yeah, definitely a surprise when it when it uh, showed its 
true colors of you know what the game was presenting that's really cool um but let's move on let's go to anthony for his first real underrated game (laughs) yes uh one of the games i have here uh came out oh man a few years ago i'm not entirely sure of the year but i only played it this year and that is alpha protocol Uh, was not okay was Hmm. not well received critically uh i'm not sure how the sales were but i know it was panned by a lot of people um, I perhaps had the benefit of people recommending that you play a stealth character in that game in terms of yeah. I mostly upgraded pistol and stealth and martial arts, I think, were the three skills I focused on, which I, which maybe is just the winning combo because that made the gameplay experience so much better. And I remember a lot of people criticizing the combat and I felt like the skills I had in place by focusing on those three areas allowed me to take care of enemies pretty easily. In fact, sometimes a little too easily. There were some moments where it got kind of ridiculous. I would activate my chain shot ability or my invisibility or anything like that, and I could just mow through these enemies. They have no idea I'm there. Pretty easy. But that was enjoyable, and I I really, really loved the dialogue options in the story, Uh, the way you could kind of shape how a character reacts to you. They could either dislike you or like you, you forge a relationship and gain trust on them, things like that. And I also, I really loved, I don't know, I don't know if the writing's good. I don't think the writing's good, but it's amusing. So mm. Thornton is kind of a sarcastic asshole even when you don't want him to be, but it's hilarious in a way. So you'll have these cheesy lines, but I'll laugh in a very endearing way. So <laughs> it kept me interested in the story, even though I, I would I would know that my, I would note to myself, that's that's a kind of a stupid line, and why is he being such a dick? But it's kind of funny, so I'm going with it anyway. Nice. And yeah, I, I I don't have a lot of bad things to say about that game, to be completely honest. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised uh, so many people didn't like that game when it came out. Well, Alpha Protocol was also one of my underrated games. Uh, okay. It it only has a 64% meta score and only sold right. 740,000 copies. Um, one thing I will say couple things is I, th- I feel like the dialogue system if not the writing you know the writing is one thing but the dialogue system i find to be better than its contemporaries i think it's a yeah. better dialogue yeah. system than mass I'd, effect i probably agree with that yeah. you know and and i think there are a lot of systems in place with your equipment and skills that are different enough to be very interesting and and very um i guess customizable i happen to play with the exact sort of build that you suggested so i'm right. really really convenient <laughs> it's really a good fortune that that happened yeah um but i i actually haven't finished the game yet so that's one that i want to go back to but i yeah i was definitely into it i thought it was cool also incredible beard technology you get thornton with a full beard in that game there's <laughs> you can see some detail in there man Jeez. beard technology oh yeah love it anybody else play alpha protocol I did not, but I always had an interest. I did. I always had a, a, a slight interest in it, basically based on my Mass Effect experience. Yeah, but I never. That's kind of what I was, where I was. So never acted like on it. it. Maybe I will. I got it during the Steam sale for like eight bucks. So then I played it uh, a couple the best. months ago. Ain't they the best? <laughs> um. No, I like. Oh, was it my turn? It's my turn, isn't it? Yes. Go. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Um, I am going to go with a game that some might wonder why it's on my list, but, um, I 
was hopelessly addicted for a long time to Mario Super Sluggers on the Wii. And <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, but I'll try. It, Mario Superstar Baseball on the GameCube was a big hit in my house. We all loved it. So the second one came out. Naturally, I'm going to try it. And, I mean, swinging the bat with the with the Wii Remote is cool and all for gameplay. But the, the amount of characters that they have in this game, granted, some of them are just color swaps with incremental changes to their statistics. But crafting a team out of, like, 80-some characters to go against somebody else who's doing the same thing can be oddly fun and and strategic and a lot more enjoyable than it probably should be it, it's it's just a blast i don't get it i'm not <laughs> going to get it but but it used to be basically it used to be in one of the game stops that i worked in in the interactive uh-huh. and when the the store would close or be really dead it was like a thing where the two employees that were working would which just totally flies in the face of protocol but we would we boot a game up and we'd play and all the characters were unlocked and we'd just have a good old time. Um and because of that I became hooked on the game itself and now I love it. Interesting. I got into the first Mario baseball game. Was it Superstar Baseball? Yep. Yeah, I got into that and just because it's baseball, I could see it working because I feel like there's been a history of video game baseball games. Video game baseball games. Of baseball video games that were over the top, kind of like NFL Blitz. I played Base Wars on the original NES, which was robots with powers and stuff. So, nice. And having been a baseball player for my whole life, I guess, um, it, it kind of resonated. But I never played the one on the Wii. I imagine it's pretty similar to the one on the GameCube. Yeah, it's not a whole lot different. Um, there's a weird story mode type thing where you go to different ballparks and finally beat Bowser because that's what you always do in a video game for, with starring Mario. But um, you just basically go and unlock more characters for your team and build your team. And yeah, it, it's not. But as far as gameplay is concerned, it's not a whole lot different other than the motion. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and this one only sold uh, one. Well, it's kind of a lot. 1.85 million copies, 69% Metascore. That's yeah. That is a little low, if you ask me. I mean, I prefer this to to Super Smash Brothers for sure. Well, we're not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> if I want, if I want uh, Nintendo characters, I'm gonna put them on the baseball diamond. You're just saying that to get a reaction. You're not gonna get one. <laughs> okay. Let's. Uh, anybody else play this game or have any opinion? No, I played the uh, Mario Super Strikers, which was really okay. Great. Soccer. Yeah, that was really great, too. Yeah, sort of the same thing. And, I mean, obviously, I think Mario Tennis was the first one, aside yeah. from, uh-huh. you know, Mario Kart. Mario Golf. Oh, was Mario Golf before Tennis? Or I, don't know. I don't know. I think so. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, they're all, they all kind of have that the little bit of a lure yeah. to them. Your favorite characters playing a sport. Whatever. I like it. <laughs> yeah, until they go to the Olympics, right? I think so they that, did. Uh, well, I know, and I'm saying it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All right, give us an underrated game, Dan. Okay, give me a second. Uh, oh, okay. Um, did anyone else play the Gun Stringer? No. Nope. But I read your review. One? It is the Connect one. Yeah, I don't have a Connect still. So. Uh, eh. Okay, I'll I'll just briefly mention it then, and then we'll be 
we'll move on. But it's a really wonderful Connect game. It's my favorite Connect game to date. Cool. Um, and uh, you you hold up your your two hands like pistols. You like when you're a kid and you're playing cops and robbers. That's what you do. You point your your finger pistols at the screen, and and you shoot by making the motion like you're shooting, like you you know the recoil from the shot. Um, and it's just and 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 then it's sort of like any uh, I don't know what is that genre. It's a it's a first person shooter, but um, I'm trying to think what the other games in that genre are. Rail shooter. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Okay, yeah, okay. So it's like any other rail shooter. You point and you shoot at the stuff that comes up on the screen. Except there's also some bits where you will control the character's movement with the left hand and shoot with the right. Um, and that's super simple too, just sort of like left and right, up and down kind of thing. It's a really delightful game, and uh, it's okay. Now I'm gonna have to look this up. The developer is Twisted Pixel, or thank yes. you. I, th- I think that's right. Yes. Okay. So, and the developer is Twisted Pixel, and they make super hilarious games, Misplosion Man, etc. Um, and it's got that that wonderful humor about it. So it's really charming. It does a bit of fourth wall breaking at the end, making use of the Kinect camera, which is, I think, pretty clever. Um, and and it just it doesn't feel like an unbelievable burden <laughs> like all of the other Kinect games I've played. So, if I had a Kinect, I'd, I'd probably play it because I, I like Twisted Pixel. Uh, I liked uh, Explosion Man and the uh, Comic Jumper was all right and uh, Miss Explosion Man. So if I had yeah. one. <laughs> I really like the idea of of doing the hand pistolas. That, yeah, that sounds really cool to me because I hate motion super, control. Right, it's super whimsical <laughs> and it yeah. works really well actually. The that detection. sounds good. Yeah, and it's you know it's also super super forgiving. So and and I'm sure that that's the key to it is that you don't have to be one to one pointing, you know, right at the enemy. You sort of like sweep your hand over the right area, and then it auto locks, and then you shoot, and he'll shoot six rounds. You know, right? Um, so it's in. I think that was a super smart design decision on their part to just say, "Listen, you don't have to get it 100 percent right to you know, to, to keep playing." Yeah, and it seems like people kind of like got that because I mean it was rated 79 percent average, but I feel like nobody played it like. It's yes. not a game that I actually heard anyone mention except you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's right. um, nobody well, nobody said anything bad about it, but nobody said anything about it really. Yeah. <laughs> so which which is not giving it maybe what it deserves, right. the recognition it deserves. That's what I would argue. Okay. Cool. Um, I'm gonna move on to a game. Which game shall I mention? I'm gonna go with. A game that I don't think anyone even really knows about, but they do know about what came after it. So, everyone's pretty much heard of Amnesia, The Dark Descent, by Frictional Games. Yes. But um, before that was Penumbra Black Plague, right. which was very, very similar. Uh, it was in a different setting. You're in sort of this um, Arctic-type setting. You're in like a facility. I think it was at once a scientific facility. And it was a very isolated 
sort of experience, and there were these horrible creatures uh, that you had to avoid. They would kill you instantly, just like amnesia. But, um, you know, the point was you were trying... I, I don't even remember the plot, honestly. You, you were just trying to get through the game without getting killed, and it was horrifying. Um, just mu in much the same way that amnesia was horrifying, but with a less um, standard horror-type setting. Right. In, in the end, it turned out to be something more strange and alien. It almost delved into H.P. Uh, Lovecraft-esque sort of horror themes. You know, there were like Alien with Hive Mind, all that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but, but the game, uh, playing the game, was very impactful in its you know in its methodology of of um manipulating your emotions and and that i felt was really worthwhile and and i thought it was a great game and i think more people should have played it so this i'm i'm kind of interested by this dynamic particularly because well because i like amnesia but also because i like bioshock and i always always hear well, Bioshock is just System Shock 2, right? Which one is garbage, but whatever. Do you think <laughs> it, do you think it's valuable to play the games that came before the great, you know, big time air quotes, the great games, the the games that were great enough to become noticed? Yes, in the, well, not always, but in this case, yes, because I feel that Penumbra Black Plague was a great game. Do you think it's do you think Amnesia is better? Mm, it's hard to say. Maybe because I've I've heard the argument that like, hey, you know, System Shock Two is not nowhere near as good as Bioshock, but it's better because it was first. And I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I feel you on that. Um, the thing about Penumbra, I don't know. I think they're they're different enough to be played to I think they're different enough to both be played. Um sure. Okay. And I think you can get equal enjoyment out of playing Penumbra uh even after having played Amnesia. That's fair. And I think the fact that that Penumbra happens in an environment that is not built around the expectation of horror makes it possibly more creepy because it, it feels maybe more real okay, in a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can get behind but that. But de definitely worth playing. Anything, uh, though, that ends with Lovecraftian alien hive mind stuff, I, that kills it for me. Oh, yeah. I love HP. It's like the ending of Signs. I'm like, come on. <laughs> like water, really? You know? <laughs> You can't kill anything with water. <laughs> That's good. Okay. All right, so let's move on. Um, Michael Murphy. Give me an underrated game. Uh, my uh, next underrated game is a uh, the, the latest entry in a uh, classic uh, series made by Ubisoft that got a little bit of flack for being too difficult 
or not too difficult, too easy. Whoa, 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 different. whoa, whoa. It is not the latest entry, and that is a big problem with my next underrated game that you just caused me to choose. Now continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go with uh, Prince of Persia, the 2008 edition. The one that had, uh, I believe it was Nolan North as uh, the prince. Yep. And uh, he, I don't he know. He also did the voice for Elika. Believe it or not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> versatile actor there. Yeah, he's got a lot of range. Just to be honest, but I, I loved the art style in this game. Loved, 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 loved it, and I actually really enjoyed the story. And I really, really enjoyed uh, the journey that the prince went through, and all the different settings, and all the different enemies and the whole concept between you know the the dark um shadow that had crept over and enveloped the entire land and the fact that you needed to like use light you uh get all the as many light orbs as you could and like you know basically cleanse the area uh the entire land again with elka or elica and i really love the ending too even though it was kind of a bit of a damper um but it got i remember finishing that game uh, and the ending happening and being like, yes, I cannot wait for a sequel. Mm. I love this game. And then just reading the back, the backlash that it got. And I just, I didn't understand it. I, I, I don't get why so many people felt that, you know, having Elika keep you from going back and continuing was too much of a cop out. Well, that's, I, that's I not, don't get it. That's not the entirety of it. Um, I'm a huge Prince of Persia fan. I, I would venture to say I'm one of the biggest Prince of Persia fans that I know. Um, and this game had the potential to be the best in the series because it did have all these great elements. You know, it had the great world, the the interesting story, beautiful visuals. Um, the combat was cool and different. But where it falls down is the primary facet of a Prince of Persia game to... I would venture to say many people, um, definitely to me, and that is in the platforming. And it's not just because Elika saves you when you fall in a pit, because, you, you know, Prince of Persia, you could always save yourself by rewinding time, but in the, the fact that you don't actually really have to do much to perform the platforming action. It, it's, it's very much an autopilot. And if that were different... I feel like this Prince of Persia would be essentially the perfect Prince of Persia game. And because it did have that concession in the platforming, perhaps to make the game more accessible, um, it it really was disappointing uh, to me in particular, even though I did like it a lot. You know, I liked it plenty, but it, it just could have been significantly better. That's where I stand on that one. So that's understandable. I I personally didn't have much of a problem with the platforming. I I uh, like I failed on the platforming multiple times, so it was challenging enough to me to where I still got a thorough enjoyment out of it. Mm. Um, and I, I I maybe I'm not remembering it right, but I but I also recall that a lot of the platforming was was kind of a little less about difficulty and kind of more like like a puzzle like you kind of had to figure out exactly which way to go and how to find the right path and there were different ways you could go and sometimes like 
you would end up in a dead end if you didn't go the if you didn't platform specifically the right way. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the world was uh, significantly more open than you would find in other Prince of Persia games, which are usually very, very linear with the camera even shifting dramatically to direct you. So I, I don't remember specifically how open and or puzzle-like those platforming sections were, but I would definitely believe that. I remember not loving the combat so much. Oh, yeah? That it, was, huh. it felt very one-note. Mm. That there wasn't much to it. It was sort of like, oh, there's like this pattern that you, you know, because you essentially fought the same creature. Ever, you know, uh, you would you would do all the platforming. You would get to the one platform that had the thing that you were trying to get. There were four of them, and then you would fight one guy, and that was it, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were each a little different. They had they had different patterns, and you had to use uh, your different types of attacks. You had either like the Elica attack, the the blade. There's a few, I think, mm-hmm. four different ways of attacking, and you had to do those in combination. And I could see where it just becomes kind of doing the same thing. But I think the fact that um, there were so few fights sort of highlighted what the Prince of Persia experience should have been. It's just the mechanics, like I yeah. said before, weren't the best for that, in my opinion. Yeah. But otherwise, I think that would have worked. Yeah, I still hope that they do. Event- I, I highly doubt it now that it's been five years since, but I really hope they do eventually go back to that universe and try to make a sequel. Because the story was really good. Even yeah. if they change up the mechanics to be more traditional Prince of Persia or whatever, just... I feel bad because I really enjoyed that story and I wanted to see that the story of that prince continue. It was a little shadow of the colossus right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's never a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Right. I mean, it, it, it has a, a meta score of 83%, sold 1.97 million copies. So, you know, it's in there. It's just, I feel like the talk surrounding it was mostly uh, negative about the the... More more about Elica than what I said, right? Yeah, that's what I got. Was a lot of people being like, "Well, Elica's a cop out. Like, if you fall, you never die. There's never a game over. There's never a restart." But you know, as you said, in previous Prince of Persia games, you could turn back time, and in future game, and there have been games since then where, like, there are platforming elements, and if you die, you could rewind time or do something or yeah. teleport or something like that, and nobody has ever complained about that. So I feel like. I feel like it was really unfair to judge and criticize Prince of Persia for that. Yeah. Fez, right? If you fall in a hole, don't you just come back right on the platform that you fell off of with no penalty whatsoever? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that wasn't something that... There's a lot of games lot of that complaints. do that now, though. That's, yeah, that's not super unique anymore. Um, I think Prince of Persia in 2008 was one of the first platformers to do that that mercifully. Yeah. And, that, and, and to have like a visible justification for it like you know narrative justification for it right you think uh, people would have been less uh, put off by it if you just fell in the hole and then appeared back on the platform yeah actually yeah, isn't that weird yeah i think that they they drew attention to it was what yeah was was i mean not a bad call but they were sort of asking for it in that way mm. yeah so that's a pretty good game I love the Prince of Persia series. We're going to hear about it pretty soon again. Um, meanwhile, Anthony, what's what's your next game? All right. Uh, this one kind of goes back to when we were talking about criteria, and I said I factored in 
sales or just you know how many people played it, how many people were talking about it, which for this game wasn't a lot. So well received critically, plenty of acclaim in that area. Uh, that was Valkyria Chronicles for the PlayStation Three. Mm-hmm. Um, is a strategy RPG, and the thing I think about a lot is uh, last year we had XCOM Enemy Unknown, which is a great game, one of my favorites from last year. And a lot of the things that that game gets praised for, Valkyria Chronicles also did. So, so you, many years ago. <laughs> yeah. So you have you have direct control over your character. So you obviously have the battlefield, but when you select a character, you have control over them, and you can move around, and you have free control really. So XCOM allows you, you know, pick a spot where to go, but you have pretty complete control of your characters in Valkyria Chronicles. So you move around. You only have so many action points to move, and then you stop there. And then you could do a command, so if you're a sniper, run over there, and then time runs out, and then you could snipe from that area or something like that. There, You still have your system where you can uh, upgrade units and equip units with new things. So when you go on the battlefield, you're better equipped for each battle. Uh, there's a really great story behind all this, which is kind of... It holds a, a place, you know, a soft spot for me, because the story, while not super unique, is is really well told... Uh, it contains a lot of themes you might not expect from a game like this. You have things like racism and stuff like that. You have a really touching uh, romance in the center of things between uh, Welkin and Alicia, two of the main characters in the game. And uh, we were talking about Catherine before, and I feel like you don't see romantic interests a lot in video games, or it's not a subject explored a lot, and it, it doesn't go, obviously, into the complexity of a Catherine, but I just appreciated the fact that you had this Kind yeah. of mini love story in the middle of it that was really nice and, but yeah, man, playing that game, like I said, it touches a lot of the things that XCOM did, uh, you know, years before, and it's a lot of fun and and I put a good fifty hours or so into that game. Nice, but yeah, this game. is a this is basically a sort of a World War Two game, right? Yeah, so yeah, it took place in uh, oh man, what year? Like nineteen. 30s or 40s or in that world or whatever so yeah you had tanks and stuff like that so it wasn't some fantastical world it was very much grounded in reality on some level and uh i, I thought that gave it a unique setting when you when you look at the art style you might expect something different but yeah yeah it looks basically like anime like, like yeah it's all self it's like this watercolor painting kind of thing going mm-hmm. on with really great look to it but yeah it also has the foundation of kind of a world war ii era kind of thing going on which is also cool it's definitely not much like it have jason dan mike any of you guys played it i played a little bit of it just scratched the surface not enough to be able to comment but i like what i played yeah yeah me too i have it here and i just i haven't played through the whole thing and it's another one that i really want to get i want more and more people to play that game i absolutely love that game awesome all right moving on to jason my turn um Everyone That's raves nice. about thanks. Everyone raves about God of War and that series, but I might be one of the only people on this earth who thought Dante's Inferno did it better. Mm-hmm. And why did it do it better? Um, I found I felt that the story was better. I thought I thought that the locations were better. The different levels of hell. Um, I felt more challenged in that game than I ever felt in the God of War game, especially at the final boss. Um. I don't know. I just I feel like I feel like it was really cool and creepy. Like when you're walking through parts of hell and you see a waterfall that's made of people, and you're just like, "Oh fuck, that's a that's a people waterfall." Those are yeah. people. 
and you're and you're just walking along and all it, it's just it's just really really cool i beat that game in a day we were having a blizzard there was nothing else to do and i just tore right through it, it was awesome so i kind of like dante's inferno too it came out in this this sort of series of this type of game right it came out the same year as god of war 3 although god of war 3 came out a little bit later it kind of I feel like it may have been rushed to beat it to market, which I'll talk about in a second. But it came out after, uh, like just after Darksiders and Bayonetta. So we had this this big string of games that are kind of similar. Um, it it got a 74% Metascore, but sold 2.08 million copies. Now my question for you is, how did you feel about the later levels? Because I played this game and reviewed it for GamerNode, and I liked it. I, I really liked the beginning levels, like Gluttony and um, uh, Lust and yeah. and maybe even uh, Greed. You know, I'm just saying these Yeah, these you would names. like those levels, Eddie. <laughs> Each level was based on a different sort of sin, and uh, the characters and level design were all based around these, these concepts, and it was really cool to see the way that they did it. Um, but later levels, I felt, were... A little lackluster. What did well, you the feel? one in particular, its name eludes me at the moment, but the one where you had to, it was just like a trial, and you kept going back to the same place. Oh, God, so many and, times. Oh, that was bad. I agree with yeah. you. That part kind of sucked. But I it was one of those things where I was that far, that much closer to beating the game, so I'm just going to buck up and beat it. I got this far. Why quit now? And I'm glad I did, because I like the way it ended. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if you had a, a good chunk of, of really good experience up to that point, can't really... I mean, you can, but it, it kind of sucks to let the ending just turn it 180 and be like, oh, this game's terrible now because of this endpoint. Although, I mean, I did I did knock it for that, but I feel like people were just like, once they got to that point, like, no, this game's garbage, 100%, without, you know, recognizing the earlier parts, which were pretty good. I agree. Yeah, I, I like thought that game a lot. I thought some other things in like the the story and the the animated uh, cutscenes were a little questionable about the characters, but not enough to really affect me. The gameplay was solid. It felt it felt just like God of War, which it, it I certainly liked. it certainly had sort of that teenage boyish like Ooh, boobs. <laughs> yep. Look at Satan's penis, you know, like that kind of. But yeah, aside from that, I thought it was it was a well. Well told story for sure. Yeah, I enjoy a lot. I completely forgot that game existed until you brought it up. Mm. Didn't even remember it was a game until <laughs> <So> right now. <laughs> but it sounds it's like I'd so under- probably like it. So yeah, play it. Okay, Dan, what's what's your next game? Let's see. Oh, you know I don't know how underrated this is. I feel like I've heard folks disparage it or at least the series. But Red Faction Guerrilla is one of my favorite games of this console generation. I've logged a ton of hours into it. Um, and sort of in the way that you can log hours into Grand Theft Auto, just running over people. And uh, Except in, in this instance, it's not people, they're buildings. Um, because yeah. Okay, so who else has played Red Faction Guerrilla? I played a little bit. Anyone else? No, okay. So, uh, every building, no exceptions, every building is destructible, like, into small, finite pieces. Um, 
and there's a physics engine built around that. So, uh, you know, if you take out the support structures of, of a building, the rest of it will come down, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's just like, it's like when you're a kid and you're playing with blocks and, you know, or, and your brother builds a tower of blocks and you take out the bottom one and the whole thing comes crashing down, right? It's it's sort of like an experiment in architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, when they were when they were making the game, they uh, they had just a real bear of a time getting the buildings to be stable because it was such a realistic physics engine. That they had a really hard time getting it to the point where these buildings that they set up would not just automatically come crashing down. Um, and I think that says a lot. One for the you know the commitment of the development team to make it happen but also just for the mechanic itself that it's that precise that it's that uh responsive to the weight the digital weight of these objects individual objects and they totally empower you to do that because the whole game is hey by the way you are the suppressed minority it's time to rise up and you know fight the power and so you get uh you get essentially experience or money for destroying anything and everything. So they incentivize destroying things. Um, and, you know, the difficulty increases as you go through it, and, and they have different challenges and different ways to, to approach that. So it's not all just like, hey, walk up to the building, hit the one column. And, you know, it's they have a ton of different kinds of buildings. And it's also vehicle-based. It's open world. Um, so you can drive a giant truck into a building and then jump out and use a nano gun to disintegrate the you know, the shell of the fuel uh, canister and then explode the entire thing. I mean, it's just super sandboxy. I love that about it. Um, and that it's, and then it sort of feels the freedom to be, be the character that the mechanics have built it to be, you know, that they don't try to shoehorn some, uh, who knows, message or, or some, something else on top of that. Right. That, that they're content to just say, this is a game about, destroying the established order (laughs) yeah volition volition has been really good about that like like getting into what it means to play and just building around that you know they did they did the red factions they went from gorilla they then did armageddon which 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 was a sour note kind of in, in that trajectory it did not do as well, I don't think you felt they tried to make it too focused without without letting you have the freedom to play. Right. Well, and so the the innovation that they came up with there was, oh, you have this thing that can rebuild yeah. buildings. It turns out that's not nearly as much fun as <laughs> <laughs> destroying buildings. So. Right. And then they moved into the Saints Row, the third. I mean, they had done Saints Row before that, but Saints Row the third really sort of changed that franchise, and now Saints Row four, which people are really digging. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think they get it for sure. Yeah, they like having fun. Awesome, and yeah, that one actually, I feel like people usually say good things about it, but not a lot of people are saying those good things about it. Like I yeah. feel like not a lot of people really played it. It sold one and a half million copies, eighty five percent, which is decent. Score. But it's yeah, just it's it's sort decent. of it's sort of like in that middling tier game, and I think it's it's top tier. Yeah, yeah it's just like where you. Some I mean, any, it's very any lukewarm. Game, yeah, any game that can, well, one, be super fun, but then also reconcile the emergent narrative with mm-hmm. the, the spoken narrative, uh, I think is really, really cool. They got something special. Yeah. Oh.
It is the most recent game in the Sands of Time quadrilogy, which people forget. Um, Prince of Persia, the Forgotten Sands. It is very much in that same that same fiction, and it you know it references those games. It has the same sort of happy-go-lucky kind of character. Well, maybe not happy-go-lucky, but, you know, making making jokes and stuff, referencing those games with what he says, you know, mentioning Pharaoh, all that stuff. Um, but it also has... Uh, it has that sort of Sands of Time magic, plus some improvements, you know, it has really good controls. Um, it, it comes off of the Anvil engine that, that Ubisoft Montreal developed for Assassin's Creed, and you can really see that in the way the game works, the way the environments are presented to you, the way that the camera um, is is almost perfect for presenting your path forward, which then makes these really good controls even better. Um, and it gives you these wonderful moments where you string, uh, like, you know, a dozen different maneuvers together to create this one. I, I would have loved if it had, like, a replay that you could save your 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 parkour i guess and then replay it later be like oh look i did this and you did like a climb to a jump a swing a bounce off the wall change a switch flip the water put on ice freeze something you know like it was really cool really good game and i feel like just nobody knew that it existed um it sold the 1.85 million copies but it only got a, a meta score of 76 percent and, and i don't really know why honestly uh, i the, I never really played, but I'm gonna say it's probably because of the p- fact that wasn't this the one that released like in tandem with the movie? Yeah, that's the thing. It came out around the same time, or, or like right, right at the same time as uh, that movie that I refused to watch just based <laughs> on the choice of actor. And maybe, I don't know. Maybe people viewed it as like, oh, it's a movie tie-in game. No, it's it's actually a, a Sands of Time game. I think that's what I thought when it was coming out, because I, I forgot about this game too, but <clears throat> I remember when it was coming out, yeah, it was like around the same time as the movie, and I remember seeing trailers for the movie and thinking, that looks like I want no part of it, and then I thought to myself, well, the game it must be tied in with the movie, which means they probably have to make him look like the guy from the movie, and it's probably even not really Prince of Persia, so I just kind of wrote it off without even Well, yeah, you know, his face it. his face looked distinctly white american which is like the main bad part about the game yeah. to me um but otherwise you know it controls like a dream and and uh for someone who's into that sort of gameplay that platforming that really sort of fast-paced uh swingy jumpy wall runny kind of gameplay it's awesome hmm. and didn't get the love so sad <laughs> anyway mike what's your next one uh, this was a game that I uh, it was a game that released last year that I picked up late, and I really didn't know what to expect from it given its long development and troubled development. But it actually really surprised me, and it was kind of a shame. And it was kind of a shame that it didn't release under its normal original title because it might have gotten more sales. And that title is Sleeping Dogs, mm. mm-hmm. which to me I believe was really cool um open world game there was a lot to do it was a different setting you even though it was an open world you weren't in like an american city or a you know a parody of an american city 
you were in uh, Hong Kong, you were in uh, in a different country and a different culture. You got to see um, parts of Hong Kong and all of that. You got there was plenty of stuff to do on the side, and the story was actually pretty uh, pretty interesting and intriguing. Nothing really like groundbreaking, but it was still really really cool story that I got a, a lot of pleasure out of. Um, it even led me to, you know, during the Steam sale, download some DLC to, just to see a little bit of what happened after the fact. Um, and yeah, it was just, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I was really surprised. Um, and unlike a lot of other open world games, like, say, the Grand Theft Autos and the Mafias, it wasn't specifically just focused on um, just gunplay. There was also uh, melee fighting because, you know, it was originally supposed to be true crime and true crime had those elements and uh the fighting was surprisingly good and they had idols that you could collect and as you collected those idols if you found them sp uh, scattered throughout the city some of the side things you would learn new combos new ways to take people down and it brought more depth to this to this melee fighting system that in most other open world games is just completely you know non-existent yeah, I'm right there with with Mike. That especially the melee combat, that felt like a game changer to me in some sense. Just to differentiate it from other open world games, like the, the melee combat in the game in that game was so fun. And when they started introducing guns, I was disappointed because I thought to myself, I want to keep fighting with my fists. Yeah, I beat because yep. that's awesome. And that's different, and it was a lot of fun. And yeah, you could get the different combos going. Uh, the world was great. I mean, yeah, that's that's just a fantastic game. You know what's interesting? My experience with Sleeping Dogs is pretty minimal. Um, I played one demo where it was mostly running through, uh, like a I guess a Hong Kong sort of marketplace, and you know, uh, whatever wherever I went. But the the combat was just melee. And I was like, wow, this seems really cool. I like this system, whatever. Then the next demo that I played introduced the guns. And I was like, uh, if that's going to happen shortly, uh, you know, shortly after getting into the game, I was just not interested anymore. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll play yeah, it. I'd say that's not indicative of the entire experience, right? Yeah. Remembering, right? Yeah. You could There's use more the melee. guns, but like there were all there was also plenty of melee combat in the game. And they also had a little bit of platforming, too. Because okay. they had uh, they had some chase sequences that involved platforming, and they also had um, certain locations and certain uh, like like unlockables and like hidden collectibles that can only be got uh, like uh, reached by platforming. So I thought right. that was another cool thing that that they put in there that not a lot or none that I can think of off the top of my head open world games do. All right, and that's uh, that's Sleeping Dogs coming in at eighty three percent, one point six. One million copies. Moving back to Anthony, what else do you have for us? Okay, uh, this is another one I only ended up playing uh, earlier this year. It came out a few years ago, two years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Costume Quest. Yeah. I uh, Double Fine. So it's basically a turn-based RPG, but I guess a big complaint with turn-based RPGs is that you input your commands and wait, and it's not entirely engaging. But Costume Quest has that system that's sort of like um, Mario and Luigi, the uh, handheld games. If you're oh, nice. familiar with those, where you you know click a button to do your attack. So you know time your time to press A before you attack and you get extra damage. Or if you want to block the enemy, 
you you know click this button when it says to and you can block an enemy's attack and it's easier to survive if you do things like that so the actual combat was pretty engaging most of the time and the real the real special thing about that game is the you know the charm of having this halloween setting where you and your brother or you and your sister depending on which character you want to choose uh, are out on halloween trying to collect candy and uh these these creatures called grubbins i believe kidnap uh, your siblings so you have to go save them and you have to trick or treat at houses and if a monster answer answers you have to fight them so you're going around collecting candy trying to find the whereabouts of your sibling it's just really cute and charming you uh, collect different outfits along the way different costumes that give you different abilities so you have like a robot uh i think the pirate is part of the dlc so not pirate you have like a spaceman and and a pumpkin and all these different costumes that give you different abilities so so you have all these things in place and i think it ends up making a really great rpg and i'm surprised more people didn't pay more attention to costume quest i'm not sure if it's because it was a smaller downloadable game it's not very long maybe you know five or six hours but the entire time i played it i was i just had a big smile on my face and really enjoyed it so that's actually awesome to hear i think maybe it's because it's too kiddy you know? Yeah, and it's pretty easy too. So some of those button presses, you don't really have to be too quick to time them just right. So, but it it really doesn't feel too. It's not really aimed at kids. I don't feel like. I just mm. feel like the setting makes it seem like that. But I feel like kids or adults could enjoy it both ways. Uh, it's an argument I made when I reviewed a uh, what was it Kirby's Epic Yarn. I remember. Oh, such a good uh, game. It seemed like a lot of people thought, oh, that's for kids, and no, you totally enjoy it. I enjoyed it just fine. And, you know. Love that game. That's yeah, cool, by, and I, I mean it way, makes sense. So I just love the turn-based, timed button press. I think Super Mario RPG was the first one to do it. Yeah, yeah. I love that mechanic. I do not understand how it's not proliferated. <laughs> right. I mean that's yeah. why Gears of War is so good, right? The active reload, right? <laughs> <While you're>... Yeah. <laughs> the greatest it's, thing ever. It's sort of like a fun little mini game, right? In yeah. between what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I really dig it. But yeah, um, yeah, that makes it a lot more engaging when you're fighting. It kind of gets rid of some of the grind. Obviously, at certain points in that game, you are fighting quite a few battles in a row, and you know it can can be a slog. But at least you're you know staying attentive when you have to press those buttons at a certain time. So yeah, great game. All right, uh, Jason, what do you have for us? Um, there's a couple of games I kind of want to talk about. I don't know which one to go with. Um, hmm. Well, you, you said that you, you have to kind of get going pretty soon? Yes, I do. Why don't you just, just, I see a five here on your list. Why don't you just give me each, give us each of them. You know, five. A little bit of oh, yeah, okay. I, I didn't see the fifth one, sure. Um, Lost Odyssey, uh, which is a Mistwalker, uh, Sakaguchi, and Uematsu collaboration on the 360, four-disc RPG, just like the old turn-based <laughs> yeah. like you used to play. That game is sick. Um, Punch Out for Wii, I feel like, is highly underrated. Not a lot oh, of people. that game's awesome. Right? <laughs> Not a lot of people. Oh. oh. <laughs> listen, listen. People didn't play it and didn't buy it because it wasn't Mike Tyson's Punch Out. But it was the same friggin' game with all the characters, <laughs> all of the same mechanics. It was awesome. I loved it. Being a big fan of the old one and Super Punch Out, Punch Out Wii was sick. Um. Brutal Legend, I feel like it's a bad rap because it's not what people expected it to be. 
Tim Schafer tried something different with the whole stage battle RTS type deal. And I will agree it didn't quite work out the way he wanted it to. But if you're a heavy metal fan, there's no reason not to play it. And it's and it's it's still a hell of a lot of fun if you can figure out the stage battles. Um, Asura's Wrath is a game that I was interested in in its development, but when I played it, I was blown away. It's like Metal Gear Solid 4 in that it's mo- it's a lot of cutscene and not a whole lot of gameplay, but the gameplay you do get is great, and it's like playing an anime. It's yeah. I call I call it the heavy rain of anime because it's basically <laughs> what it is, just with a lot hmm. more a lot more um, action gameplay instead of like you know brushing your teeth or losing your son in a park or a mall. Um, <laughs> and finally, finally, Spec Ops: The Line I think is one of those games where it, it seemed to be a normal generic shooter when I started it. And then by the end I was like, Whoa, Whoa, this is like one of the deepest stories I've ever played in my life. And this whole Joseph Conrad heart of darkness thing is really up my alley. And it's just awesome. Here's a, here's a question for you. Have you seen or played all of the, I think there are three endings. I have not. There's one ending in particular that I think seals the deal. Let's not talk about that one just yet. I'm not. I'm not going to. Okay. But, <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about the ending, anyways. But I, 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 the one I, I had the the path. I'll put it this way to you, Dan. My ending was the path of least resistance. Okay. Not if the right makes, one. If that makes sense. That's the wrong ending. That is not the <laughs> worst ending possible of all the No, it's, it's not. But there's, there's I think, a, a much cooler one. I'll have to... I, I know what they are, and I know how you get them. I just... I haven't... I don't remember the details at the moment. I have to figure out which one you probably mean. Yeah. Um, but that, that game... It's definitely worth a replay. I uh, I got it for free on PlayStation Plus. I'm just waiting for a chance to sit down and play it again because I really want to. I really want to also. Um, I have a question for you about Brutal Legend, though. Okay. How did you manage to enjoy that game? That's what I, I really want to know. <laughs> I, I, I liked the, the metal references, the, the rock and roll references. Okay. Jack Black doesn't bother me. Well, Jack and, Black, I thought it was good actually. Yeah, and the and the um the stage battle thing, yeah, it's it takes some getting used to, and it's not the heavy third person action game I expected. But once I got a hold on it, once I got a once I got a um a wrap a, my head wrapped around the system, it really was pretty cool. I really I really really liked it. It's hard to explain, but I feel like that game kind of gets a bad rap because everyone assumed it would be one thing, and he tried something different. Yeah. And did he trip at the finish line? Yeah, probably, but it's not the worst. I guess maybe this maybe this is a better thing to ask. I guess the real question I have about Brutal Legend because I got to a point where I hit the stage battles and there were a bunch of them, and I just didn't want to do that because it wasn't fun. Um, does that stop? Does it go at all back to any of the earlier stuff? It does it equalize or does it still remain pretty heavily stage battles toward you know for the rest of the game? Well, the last three or four battles were all stage battles. And difficult at that. Like at one, the very last stage battle, you have to be able to work with the stage, and then at some point, at one point, you have to summon the deuce mm-hmm. to help you, which is friggin' hard. But so, now, once you get to the stage, 
battles? Is it it's just stage battles? I don't know that it's just stage battles. That I don't remember, but it's mostly. I I would say that most of the main battles are stage battles. Yeah. Ugh, couldn't do it. Could not do it. Lost Odyssey though. That's a good game. That is a good game. That's one of the games that I regret most never having played from this generation. Yeah, and it's like you you almost feel like you're not going to as time goes by because you look at those four discs and it's like, oh, geez. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to be able to appreciate this. It's going to be like me in Final Fantasy VII. I didn't play Final Fantasy VII until much too late, and then I just couldn't enjoy it because of technology or so much time had gone by or having played newer games so the magic was gone i don't think that's going to happen with lost odyssey but uh definitely one i think that that still holds up pretty well lost odyssey yeah for sure i mean it probably still looks beautiful um and the thing about it is that it's that old sort of final fantasy magic because of the team that worked on it right i I don't understand I don't know, it's got a 78% rating, only 850,000 people played it. I mean, I guess I get it, you know, it's sort of, it's that really Japanese RPG kind of niche. My understanding was that it was a westernized, I haven't played it, but it, it was more of a westernized JRPG. You know, that it was, at the heart, it was a Sakaguchi piece, but, he, you know, Miss Walker is funded by Microsoft think it was the team was in america right i think so yeah so it was it very much had that influence sort of the democratized RPG. well you have the you have the the battle system which has um i think you have these rings or, or like a ring system right and uh i think it's almost i mean it's been a while since i played it but it's almost similar in that you time things or time the rings so that they line up and then you can get like a, a certain ranking on your hit so kind of going back to what I was saying with costume quest kind of this thing where you have to pay attention when you're fighting and and make sure the rings line up so you do the most damage and things like that if I'm remembering correctly yeah that sounds right that's yeah. how I remembered it too so it's like Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga in a way sort of. <laughs> it's very much like uh, Mario and Luigi actually uh yeah. All right. Um. So before I get to my next one, I think Jason's gonna head on out for now. Yeah, Until next I gotta time. go. Be responsible and go to bed <laughs> so I can go to work in the morning. Um. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being overrated and underrated. And uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Adios. Take care, Jason. All right, see you, Jason. All right, see you. Hi, Jason. <laughs> All right. So, I guess it's my turn then. Um, oh, goodness. This is tough. I have, like, the obvious ones, and then I have the the more personal ones. Um, I guess I'll go with Nier. I mean, you can't mention underrated games in this generation without saying Nier. Did somebody say Nier? I just did. <laughs> so near near has sold 760,000 copies um has 68% metacritic rating but it's an awesome awesome game it's um i don't know what to call it it's like sort of an rpg but it's it's real time action 
I think it's more of an ARPG action. Yeah, action RPG, I think, is a good way to describe it. But it's, but it's a big world. It's got, like, a Zelda Hyrule field to it, a bunch of different towns that you go to, and there are different, you know, subplots. You know, very much a sort of role-playing kind of situation. Um, but the interesting thing about it is it's very aware. It's very self-aware and aware of the medium, and it does a lot of things to... Um, I want to say comment, but just reflect maybe is a better word to reflect the medium and a variety of genres. So there, there are sections where where the game might turn into a more um, like a Resident Evil like uh, adventure, going through this. Uh, I guess it was a mansion basement. Um, so it, it goes to those static camera angles, and you have to do like little stupid puzzles. Um, and then there are other parts where it's like bullet hell, and the the plot is very very good. Um, the game deals a lot with with different tragedy, loss, and death. It's it's actually very deep. It's about uh, a man basically doing everything in the game to find a cure for his dying daughter, um, and it ends up that he kind of like saves a bunch of other people, helps a bunch of other people. But, you know, it's really just an excellent game. And uh, I feel like it just never got a chance because it has, like, these funky graphics that I thought were cool, but people could see as, like, being poor. Um, The beginning, if you get into the side quests, it's very easy to think, oh, these side quests are terrible, but you don't have to do any of them. Um, I don't know. It's a great game. It's a really Mm -hmm. good game. Uh... Definitely worth trying if you care about story, writing, that sort of thing. Um, I would I would definitely recommend that one. And I, I I was on a podcast even entirely about Nier. Wow. For yeah, that was Big Red Potion. That's somewhere up on the site. The thing I remember about that game is I remember this big thing when uh, Justin uh, McElroy. Oh, that's right. Uh, couldn't figure out the fishing or something. God, what an just... idiot! <laughs> okay, I just remember that. So, so very, very popular games writer um, made a video because he couldn't figure out the fishing aspect of the game. Um, right. There's a point where you have to fish something out of the water. A fish. Was it a fish or was it an item? Even whatever it was, you you had to go fishing and catch a thing, and. That was the only way you could progress in the game. So he made this video about fishing and how terrible and game-breaking it was and how he spent like an hour and, you know, he spent a really long time just berating the game and, and really whining about it. But in the game, there's an X on the map for where to go fishing. Um, I, and the problem there is that, you know, with such a big audience... And people who, you know, trust what you have to say, they, they took that to heart. And then all of a sudden, oh, Nier's the game with the fishing, right? Oh, that game's terrible. I can't right. play that. I can't <clears throat> play a game like that. So nobody, you know, people don't play that because they, from a, from a reputable source, they get misinformation. And that was a big problem for that game. Really yeah. upsetting, actually, because that team... Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember people pointing out that he just wasn't, or he's missing something. I remember some people uh, mentioning, like, that he's just missing something or not paying attention to something that wasn't indicative of the entire game or anything like that. So Yeah, not at all. Basically, 
each town you go into has a map, and you don't get the map automatically. You, you just go to the the item shop and you buy the map, and on the map is an X. Oh, okay. That says yeah. exactly where to go fishing. So he's hadn't bought the map yet? And yeah, and you catch it the very first try. <laughs> it takes wow. literally two minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's so a shame. Kind of upsetting. Yeah. Either of you other guys even dabble in near? I saw a speed run of it uh, on the Awesome Games Done Quick uh, thing that was a few weeks ago where people just speed run through games and uh, thought it looked all right. I thought the combat looked pretty cool. So... But uh, not myself. I haven't played it. All right. So yeah, that's that's near. Definitely worth a shot. Worth playing. Um, Mike, what do you have for us? Uh, my final uh, underrated game on my list uh, was a game that I really fell in love with. Eddie, I know you loved it too. Um, it was very. Very different in terms of uh, combat and uh, storytelling uh, because it mm-hmm. went really heavy with the Lovecraftian type horror. And it even was different in storytelling also because of its episodic nature of its li- of how the game progressed. And that was Alan Wake. And I actually... I- for one, absolutely loved how they treated Alan Wake's chapters like episodes in a TV show. Yeah. Like uh, something kind of almost like Twilight Zone, where everything had, a, where there were different episodes and each episode would end on like a cliffhanger of some sort. And I'm also one that, even though I don't, I've never really like read any Lovecraft, I actually love Lovecraftian horror. I love the, love um, anything that has stuff where. You know, there's this ominous, like, overpowering force, and the only reason, and we can't understand, or the only reason why we can't explain um, how powerful it is, or the real, why there's no explanation for why it's so powerful, why it does what it does, is because it's so powerful that our brains cannot fathom, like, it's a, the, the reason for its existence. Mm. And I kind of just like that kind of ominous type of horror of, like, this, this power that you don't understand, that you can't comprehend. Um, is just after you, chasing you, coming after you, and just taking over everything. Right. Um, and I also really liked liked um, Alan Wake's struggles um, as a character and his troubles with his uh, with his with his wife. Um, and I believe, if I remember correctly, he was thinking about getting a divorce or he was going through some troubles. And the, their trip to Bright Falls was actually like a kind of like a last ditch effort to try to save the marriage. And then. He realizes his faults of where he went wrong, what's wrong, well, like why he's, why the marriage is in such trouble, why he really loves his wife, and why he fights back together, and um, probably one of the biggest reasons why I, I I'm why I'm upset about why about Alan Wake not being received so so well as other titles is because of the fact that that ending made me die to see a sequel and see what would happen next and where they could take the, take the story based on the ending. And because it hasn't really been received well, that doesn't look like we will ever get an Alan Wake sequel, which really, Oh, we will. We have to. (laughs) Um, well actually Alan Wake, uh, was received pretty well by critics in, in general, 83%. Um, it only sold, well, so 1.26 million copies, but I feel like the general, 
uh, attitude surrounding it and a lot of the discussion following the the game's release and an initial reception was pretty poor and and people kind of hated on the story and the characterization of Alan Wake himself and I I never really got down with that because I, I really liked it the, the thing for me that was problematic um, was perhaps the shift in the atmosphere from the beginning to the end how it shifted more from mystery to a little bit more uh, of the combat heavy elements of the game yeah that was the only thing but that you know I, I toyed with my score I think I gave it a four out of five which was uh, a, a high four out of five let's say I, I really yeah. enjoyed it and would love to see more and I loved the expansion not so much of the signal but of the writer DLC was excellent excellent how about uh, American Nightmare? Did not play it. Anyone else? Was that as a sequel or not. prequel? It was a standalone, uh, se- uh, not Downloadable a sequel, thing, but right? yeah, standalone expansion. What oh. I read was that it was very combat heavy. Yes. Um, so I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. It was. It was. Uh, but it was. It was more of the same in terms of, uh, Mike. You you were saying. You, you really loved the horror that came from being out of control, have, having a force that subverts you and, and your ability to, to control the player. And there was some of that. So that was cool. Hmm. Okay. I think I but, have it now. I got it on the Steam sale for like a penny. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was, no, it was literally like 95 it's, cents. It is worth something. at least a penny. Yeah. <laughs> I think. And I really, I really loved what the game did combat wise too i don't understand why i've heard people complain about the combat of being like oh you're just holding up a flashlight to people that's so lame but it was something different it's so different from the standard like just run and gun type thing i mean i understand that basically like um that flares and flare guns were basically like grenades and grenade launchers but the fact that you had to like use your flashlight which would lose battery to like wear them down before you could take a shot at them or anything. I thought that was really cool. It was so different. And, and I, I don't know. I would, it was just, it was really addictive. And I absolutely also loved the, uh, the dodge mechanic, the slow motion dodge mechanic. I oh, thought that yeah. just made that it great. really intense. Mm. And I, I felt, I loved the combat. I loved just about everything about that game. And I, and I'm so sad that it didn't like, I mean, I know it sold over a million copies, but I really w- think it could have or should have sold somewhere between maybe even the three or four million mark. Yeah. Like, I would, I'm really I sad that it didn't have again. a wider success amongst consumers and gamers. Yeah. I would totally play that game again. And just to be just to clarify, I didn't dislike the combat. I thought it was very uh, unique in the way that you use the flashlight and then the other things. But um, it just ended up being more than I wanted when I was trying to progress in the story. That's really all I was saying before. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely good. And I think Anthony has a game came out around the same time and uh, sort of was set in the same place and had a lot of the same themes, was based on some of the same stuff. Um, oh, is this a game you also had on your list? Yeah, tell us about uh, it. I was, gonna th- I was thinking... Maybe you could handle the 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 bulk of this because <laughs> it's a game I haven't played. 
Oh. I've seen someone play the whole thing twice. Okay. So, I so the game is Deadly Premonition. Yeah, or it is. Twin Peaks, the video game, whichever you prefer. But yeah. <laughs> a lot of Twin Peaks references in there. But so I've seen someone play it. So obviously I haven't done the combat. I haven't played. You know, with the mechanics, I understand people don't like the shooting. It's very clunky. Controls probably aren't great. But the the characters in that game. The bizarre stuff that happens, the fact that he references Zack all the time, the way you you can get smelly if you don't change your clothes, the way your beard grows and you have to shave, the weird twists and turns the story takes, everything about that game is so weird, but so lovable at the same time. I, I just can't, I can't get enough of the writing and just the Lynchian vibe you get from it when you play mm-hmm. it. Or, well, I haven't played it, but when, I guess even when you watch it. Yeah. It's almost like watching some crazy TV show. Yeah, absolutely. The the way Deadly Premonition is presented is easily watchable, you know, even if you're not playing, because the its strongest points are its writing, its characters, their interaction with one another. Um just oh man, the main character, York, is <laughs> hilarious in his just his social ineptitude. He's a, a big city FBI agent who's come to the Pacific Northwest to solve the murder case, the murder mystery of the raincoat killer. Um, and it, it's it's a very, very interesting plot. Um, and it's wrapped in sort of an ugly, last-gen-looking <laughs> wrapper but it has game mechanics that are pretty sophisticated in that you know you're adhering to a, a sort of real world clock um you're traveling around a town that is completely alive with characters who are at all times labeled on the map and go about their day no matter what from you know from midnight to midnight there's every character is always somewhere on the map going somewhere you might find someone walking in the woods in the middle of the night or you may see that another character goes to a particular bar at a certain time and then goes home or that another character you know whatever they do there's there's so much detail and so much care put into this world of greenville um that that it is super endearing you know along with just the the way the characters speak, um, and you have to take care of your of your main character with food, and you have to have him sleep, and you get bonuses like y- you get rewarded for the funniest things for saving your game. Uh, you get extra money. You you get a bonus for using your blinkers in the car when you're driving. Um, you get bonuses for laundering your suits of which you gather many throughout the adventure and can switch for different minor, minor effects, but mostly just for the aesthetic and, and the style of it, just to, to give you that option. You can shave. Um, yep. So good. Just such a good game. Uh, some of the mechanics are definitely not great. The, the combat um, is mostly skippable. I didn't want to shoot the enemies which are these townsfolk who have been affected by a poisonous miasma that that 
happens when it rains. Um, but so I didn't really want to do that. So I didn't, I just ran through the, these nightmare sort of worlds from door to door and skipped a lot of the combat because it wasn't good. Um, so, so you get what you, what you want out of it. Um, I would recommend this game to anyone who cares about video game writing again and who is interested in seeing the ways that a developer can put together a game can can use this medium to tell a story in a in an unexpected and and original way definitely very very good game i really enjoyed it i actually just was on a podcast i was on the kane and rinse podcast about deadly premonition and we talked at length about it so so yeah definitely worth talking about worth playing wonderful i don't know if if dan or mike have played it Uh, well i haven't played it but i certainly feel like i should be playing it i i feel like you should be too all I right. feel like you would definitely appreciate. I can see you just l- cracking up really? watching the character. Okay, I haven't seen <laughs> Twin Peaks though. Is that it a doesn't problem? matter? Yeah, I was gonna ask you. Have Have you seen it, Eddie? Uh, I watched some Twin Peaks probably after playing Deadly Premonition. Okay. Yeah, you don't need. You don't really don't. You really need don't to at see all. Twin Peaks, but you do get a lot of references if you have seen the show. There are a lot of Twin Peaks references in that game once you've seen the show. So I mean, it does. It, you know, like I said, you can still play it, but it does help add something extra to the game because you go, oh, hey, even the main character and the way he, he talks to that Zack guy is a reference to Twin Peaks. And it's a very you know central thing, a, a central story hook kind of thing to the game. So, yeah, I kind I hate that a little bit because it's like, oh, you're missing out. It's not it's not Twin Peaks the game. It's just some inside jokes because yeah. Sweary was and is a fan, obviously. Okay, yeah. So you really don't, yeah, the humor is is more broad than just hey, here's here's a Twin Peaks joke. If you haven't seen <laughs> it, <laughs> Remember what Billy did down on the South Peak? <laughs> yeah. That's how I imagine Twin Peaks episodes go. <laughs> They just talk about things happening on one or the other peak. <laughs> but yeah, definitely so good. So, so good. Um, I think we're we're coming to the end of our lists here. I think, Anthony, you have, you have one more, and then I just have... One more that I was on down. the fence about, so I'll just quickly mention it. Cause I've, it I've also got one that I can throw in the ring here. Okay, yeah. So we'll go Anthony, then Dan, and then I'll just round out with the rest of mine. Yeah, I'll just quickly, I'll just quickly mention, um, driver San Francisco, which came out a couple years ago and I didn't really hear a lot about it. I ended up reviewing it for the site. Uh, I think it sold like, okay. It was pretty well received. I I think you said 80% here. Um, but I mean, it had this really cool switch mechanic where you're driving one car and you can just pop out of that car, almost like a, a Google street map view, and go into a new car and just transfer your, I don't know, your soul or whatever you want to call it. I forget the specifics. But you can transfer yourself from one car to the next. And it plays into these missions that you're doing. So so you may be driving here and then you need to transfer to a new car. So you zoom out and you find that car and you get in there. And you kind of go around the world that way. So it was really 
really interesting way of doing things. It, it eliminated the need to, you know, exit a car and walk over to a new car. It really sped up the process of, of changing cars and making for these interesting missions. And uh, the story is pretty, pretty fucking crazy uh, in both good and bad ways. Sometimes it's a little too much. Sometimes it's just the right amount of crazy. The ending in particular, I won't say what it is, but the ending is... Yeah, I don't really want to go into specifics about the story, but it's it's crazy. Sufficiently crazy. I didn't know that there was that much of a story or a narrative involved, but the game mechanics seemed really cool when I had a look at it at one of the E3s. Definitely something that's that I would imagine is worth getting into. Alright, so so Dan, you said you had one more, right? Okay, yes. Um I wish I wish that I could say I, well, I don't really wish this. I want to talk about Rayman Origins more, so I try to come up with excuses to talk about it. But uh, as it happens, it was pretty well received, so it's not so underrated. So I guess I want to talk about that. But, <laughs> but, but you know what was not as well received as I think it should have been, and hence what? is underrated. Don't don't judge me with your judgment lips, Eddie. If you say Angry Birds, this is over. <laughs> it's not Angry Birds. Okay. <laughs> Bioshock 2. Yes. Underrated? Okay. Yes, I think underrated. Wow. I, I think that there is a really incredible amount of world building and storytelling in that game that go that gets glossed over because well well one because they tacked on multiplayer which not the right call i think we can agree there uh but i don't think it destroys what happens in the single player um clearly hey sophia lamb she's no andrew ryan we got that um but Man, Sinclair, he is an incredible side character. Uh, Grace Holloway, she is an incredible side character. Um, Stanley Poole, awesome. Learning more about the other characters from the original Bioshock, awesome. Being out in the ocean, awesome. Uh, Dual wielding, you know, plasmid and weapons, awesome. Having a big daddy drill for an arm, awesome. Uh taking little sisters and having them gather for you. Awesome. Um, what's, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, the, the different levels of plasmids. So you can like upgrade the, so it's not just like, Hey, like, Hey, you're on fire now. It's like, Hey, you're on fire now, or I'm going to shoot this fire storm at you, or it's a fire tornado. Like, you know, there are different tiers of, of the plasmids. Um, Fontaine, Futuristics, where you, where all the alpha big daddies are, uh, and there's the bit up where you go through like the big daddy training section. You go like go in the back, which is sort of a subversion of like learning to be a big daddy in the first game. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of, and still the voice acting really great. I think the Gil Alexander piece was too confusing for most people. If you played the game, then you know what I'm talking about. It was super confusing because it was like, wait. What is this business about, like, congealing all of the atom into one entity so that it knows everything? You know, it was, it was sort of a little bit too heady, I think. 
it was it wasn't as concrete as like hey go kill this guy mm-hmm. um and so and so it was sort of hard to wrap your mind around and then and then there was the, the piece with Eleanor that some people liked and some people didn't but um I think a really well done game uh the bit where you're the the little sister you become a little sister and see through the eyes of a little sister how unbelievably creepy were a few of those moments there where you're like oh look it's a it's it a doll an <laughs> yeah it's an angel here's this puppy dog and then you, and then boom flashback to reality it's a corpse of course it's a corpse there are yep. always corpses <laughs> yeah. uh i i really loved a lot of things about that game and i think it's just so unfortunate that it had to be the the successor to bioshock which is the game that it is mm, uh, yep we'll see. there was just no way to to meet that expectation right right but i think that we're, we're talking about a game that has you know an 88 percent meta score and uh sold 3.65 million copies um perhaps, okay again perhaps so I'm going main... by, yes i'm going by the again the individual zeitgeist of the game that I, as i right. understand it right so, a lot of what you hear about with the multiplayer and oh it's not bioshock it's not bioshock rapture one. again oh like yeah that's kinda... right I, I did have what i thought was a uh legitimate complaint about the game um and it has to do with a lot of the the lore of rapture and how wonderful that is um the fact that i can't simply go through that world and learn about rapture without being bothered by such trivial things as you know combat every time i go into a new hall or those stupid uh defense missions where you have to set up a perimeter i hated okay, those okay so, yeah so there are a lot of people that didn't like that as well which is understandable for sure but um there there was a lot i agree of good stuff with the uh the audio logs audio logs yeah yeah yeah, there was a lot of good stuff with audio logs that i felt was um i feel like it it wasn't made as available to the player as accessibly as i think it was important to have been um i think that's the best part about that game and it wasn't right there at the forefront uh, in a way that I would have preferred. Uh, yeah, I'm with you there. I think that there are also, though, if you go back to Bioshock, there are some moments where it overwhelms a little. With If you're moving quickly enough, it, you're sort of end-to-end with audio logs, um, which which is like, hey, you know, you're not re- leaving a lot of room for silence there, which builds that tension. Right. Um, and also when you're a big daddy and you're you know super jacked, it's that, you know, there's not a ton of tension there either, right? Mm. Um, I also I think the voice acting, you know, not as strong. I think the the written characters, Stanley Poole, although he's conniving and creepy, will just never be as creepy as Doctor Steinman, who wants to cut your face because it's symmetrical. You know, <laughs> he's gonna cut off one of your breasts because the goddess Aphrodite told him to. Like that's so creepy. Like you don't, you don't top that part. So they had another theater section, right? In in Bioshock Two, you yeah. can't beat Sander Cohen. The second you walked in there, he's like, "Hello, little moth." 
He blows up a guy for playing the piano wrong. Yep. And then tells you to take three pictures of corpses <laughs> of people that he's sexually molested, as it turns out. You don't get creepier than that. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like you can't write a creepier part than that. Um, at least in, in that context, I don't think so. So it's hard. Again, I think it's just super unfortunate that it and yeah. unfortunate that it inherited the legacy that it did. Um, and then, I mean, you top that with uh, maybe you would consider it a separate game, uh, Minerva's Den, which is just one of the better pieces of DLC uh, that I've ever played. played. Yeah, yeah, I need to play that at some point. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, spearheaded by one of the guys. Yeah, uh, gone, made, home. Gone, gone home. Gone right? home, yeah. Um, and, and that kind of care really shows too is and that's very much the the essence of bioshock is you take a room and you shove as much meaningful crap and detail into it as you can um that's not a text log or you know something very dry and baroque something more lively like a like a corpse with a an empty bottle at its feet that that's that in itself tells a story and that's what bioshock has always done well and that's what gone home does well and that's what bioshock 2 continued to do yeah and that's why bioshock infinite is the most overrated game of the generation (laughs) (laughs) just kidding um so mike do you have any more underrated games are you done um that was pretty much it for me all right i'm just gonna run through a few really quickly uh so staying with horror silent hill downpour um, 66%, only 590,000 copies sold. I feel like it's the closest we're going to get to the old feeling, the, that old horror of Silent Hill from games one through four. Because then you went through just the the horrible adolescent years, acne on the face, uh, <laughs> you know, just the worst the worst possible Yo, all I had, time for I the had series. I had straight up acne on my face. Yep. So yeah. did the Silent Hill series for quite a while. But Downpour really came back um, more so than any of the other games. Homecoming sucked, and Silent Hill Jr. on the PSP sucked. And I mentioned Shattered Memories in the last show I didn't, I wasn't into. Um, but yeah, Downpour, I think, really, really attempted to get back to it and, and succeeded in a lot of ways. Not entirely, but... It's it's the best we've seen in the Silent Hill franchise, something I've been playing for a long time. Um, Prototype is another game, 79%, 2.44 million copies. I feel like it's it's uh, an incredibly overlooked power fantasy. gives you tons of really awesome like super abilities, and it tells an interesting story surrounding Alex Mercer, who's infected by this virus, and he becomes the target of of the government, the armies after him. It's in New York City. Um, there's he he doesn't know the story behind any of this, so he has to go through the game, and you get these flashbacks. There's this web of intrigue sort of uh, setup, and it it tells the story sort of backwards and and it's kind of a mystery it's like memento-ish um and you know a lot of the gameplay kind of laid a little bit of the groundwork for what we see in saints row 4 now that sort of wild and and over exaggerated power um running sprinting through the city jumping really high climbing buildings gliding um, to be fair, I think Crackdown probably yeah, I was is more crackdown. of 
but maybe maybe there's something else about prototype that I'm missing. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's it's sort of that he has he has a bunch of strange abilities to like he's he's a, a shapeshifter, so you can make these blades and stuff with his arms, and things come out of yeah. the ground, and you can assume people's identity. You can morph into other characters in order to get into other places as a disguise. You can't can, you straight flip a tank? You can grab a. a I don't know if you can lift a tank. That might be a little too heavy, but you can lift cars and throw them at helicopters. That's like it's cool. it's legit. Um, definitely a game where you feel like you're the man. You know, <laughs> like if that's I like looking feeling for, like the man. If that's yeah. what you're looking for in video games, then uh, you're gonna get it. But but Crackdown to me was nothing exciting. Really, you didn't like it? No, not at all. Hmm. So I don't know what what the difference there was. I mean, I could probably figure it out pretty easily. But um, yeah, I think it was the the more superhumanness about Prototype, and especially coming out at the same time as Infamous. Those two games were compared a lot, even though they were very different games. And it was kind of annoying to watch Infamous, which we mentioned on the last show as an overrated game, get a lot more of the love and prototype just sort of fly right under the radar for a lot of people. So mm. that, that's that's a reason to include it for me. Um, what else? I Am Alive is an excellent, excellent game, which I just played maybe a month ago. It's kind of like The Last of Us in that it's a it's sort of a post-apocalyptic survival like urban survival game but it's very very oppressive in its environment there's this there's this dust that covers the whole planet presumably and you can't breathe in it so you'll need to get a gas mask later on in the game and there's a climbing mechanic where you quickly lose stamina so you have to get from area to area and get on, get on your feet without um, falling to your death <laughs> and there are ways to rest and you get maybe you know one or two bullets at a time and you have to approach these other survivors who are invariably aggressive um, there's a little bit of monotony in the way that you approach these fights but a lot of times you have to just like pretend that you're giving up and then pull out your machete and you know kill the first guy then you can use an empty gun or just, you know, use a gun with one bullet in it and hold people up, you know, to scare them, to stop them from approaching you, and then use that to your advantage to, you know, kick them over a cliff or maybe you have to shoot one. But you have to kind of figure out how to manage the number of enemies you're encountering with the very, very limited resources that you have. And it, they could have done more with that. They could have made it a little bit more variable. But just seeing that in the first place was very different. And, um, you know, having to sort of think about what's going to happen should you come into contact with, with a hostile in this sort of um, dangerous and and uncivilized post-apocalypse was was really different very interesting uh, sounds like it was very thoughtful yeah definitely and it had this really troubled development history uh it was made by ubisoft shanghai 
it started out as basically a full-on disc game and then just got whittled down and down and down to just a downloadable and it it changed its visual style and uh some of the the design elements from its beginning of its development cycle to to its release but it, it came out okay in the end which is great it's sort of like yeah score one for you know the underdog in this in this sad story of development <laughs> you know i think it's it's also a timing thing for i am alive if the rest of consumers are anything like me then they are just so stinking tired of an apocalypse like let me be in a world that is not in tatters and in ruin for however many years like just i've right like we've we've played this out the scenario out in so many different yeah. ways there can only be so many different kinds of mutated humans and so many different ways to have a crumbled building and block a staircase with furniture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that's super funny is you can climb you can climb to the top of a skyscraper just along the outside of a building, but if there's like a table in the way, the guy can't go over it. Right? <laughs> in certain cases, I that always got to me, that sort of restrictive the invisible wall. Yeah, the the fake corralling of the player into the area that they want you to go. Yeah. Which is sad. And I just have one more game. Um, probably the biggest game on my list. Sold 10.66 million copies. and uh, Yeah, super underrated. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> 81%. 81%. Uh, no, no, well, I think the, the attitude surrounding it has become, oh, yeah, that one sucked. Uh, the first <laughs> Assassin's Creed. Yeah, think, that's right. That is I think right, the yeah. first Assassin's Creed did an immense amount of good for gaming, um, despite having devolved into a once-a-year franchise. I, Yo, I, do you, I mean, do you remember what it was like before every game had a protagonist that could climb anywhere? Yeah, yeah, that was... <laughs> That was the the yeah. big thing. They like developed. This is the Anvil engine, right? They they developed this world where it was all based on the actual architecture of of these buildings. So if there was space for where a character could potentially put his hands and feet, then this character could put his hands and feet there. And it was it was very well done. The the whole puppeteering quote unquote puppeteering system just worked. Um, there were there were a couple of ways you could kind of like miss the jumps. You would jump at funny angles, but for the most part, it was a, a really good accomplishment. Plus, mm -hmm. it had this combat system based on counterattacks that kind of paved the way for one of the the favorite darling series of this generation, the the Batman Arkham series, it's borrowed heavily from Assassin's Creed in their combat system. You know, I. I don't think that you can understate, though, how important the climbing mechanic was at that time. I remember yeah, I remember finding, you know, whatever the tallest building was that I could find and climbing to the top of it and, like, running down the hall of a dorm that I was living in at the time and being like, <laughs> guys, guys, come here, you've got to see this. And then I did the, ah! you know, the yeah, dive off dive. the top. And they were all like, what? Like, And then I climbed back up and they're like, no. Like you couldn't believe, and I couldn't. I was like, I can climb. I can climb anywhere. Anything you see, I can climb on. 
Yeah, and then what? Two years later, we're like, uh, <laughs> excuse me, a hay bale will not break your fall. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like, yeah, there was just too much eavesdropping. And you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's another that. thing. Is like people get get stuck on that, but the way that the series evolved. I, I kind of missed the original Assassin's Creed and the way that that worked because okay so in Assassin's Creed you were much more of an assassin and much less of a Tommy Versetti in a historical period um, so the way it worked was for each section of the game there was a specific target and in order to be able to kill that target you had to do smaller missions ahead of it to gather information that told you how to get to that target. And if you're paying attention, all this information makes a whole lot of sense and it helps you as if you were that character. Unfortunately, when you do these missions, you don't actually have to pay attention. The game just makes it available. Um, maybe if they didn't give you the exact location of that final target and you had to keep, you know, track of the information you had gathered before, it would seem more significant, but it, it was all very well calculated as opposed to just putting dots on the map for you to go and start missions and complete them and then go to the next one. But I think it's more an issue of structure where there were, what, seven, nine contracts, something like that? I'm uh, not sure the number. Assassination targets. And there was a specific section marked off for each of them, and you did the same stuff to get, you know, it was it yeah. was super formulaic. And yeah, so it that after you did it twice, you were me. like, oh, well, well, okay, well, by the time I leave Acker and go to the next place, like, it'll be cool. Oh, oh Damascus is the same? Oh, okay. You know, and so you get that you're not really doing anything different. Right. Um, it, it, it is, it's a little different at the end if you do it correctly, but I never did because I wasn't good enough. <laughs> and so it always just devolved into like a five minute parrying battle. <laughs> and yeah. then eventually it just, you know, just stabbed the guy. So maybe uh, the solution would have been just varied investigation missions because the... well look at look at assassin's creed 2 which is considered far more successful right and it was yeah. one of our games of the generation or decade or something like that it's also our game of game of the year of 2009 maybe that was it game of the year 2009 i gave it a 10 in my review yeah yeah well and i think it earned it right because there's a much fuller world supporting it uh but also it's hey here's 10 assassination targets at the beginning of the game, right? It's like, hey, here's the one thing that you're supposed to be doing. And so you discover a little bit more about that and the story sort of lends itself. Okay, well, you're probably going to have to kill this person. Well, now you're going to have to kill this other person because of this story beat. And then it moves on that way. And it's much, much more organic mm-hmm. um, and, and much more unexpected. There's a lot more surprise involved there. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely a varied experience. Yes. But also, it at that point with Assassin's Creed 2, it hadn't devolved into what I was talking about before, which I think really happened in Brotherhood Revelations. It was just yes, totally GTA missions essentially, but without yeah. without a really focused connection between them and really flooding it with too many super, superfluous things. Um, yeah, which, I mean, which look were at not Revelation. 
was it Revelations, the one where you had to collect the pieces of the disc? I don't even know. Yeah, yes. the, yeah, you had to collect pieces of an artifact. At the beginning of the game, they're like, by the way, there are eight pieces to this artifact, and you just got one. And I was like, ah, really? Like, that's how this is going down? <laughs> Uh, like where is the surprise in that there were, i mean to me that's so disheartening yeah that's like that's like being in mario world one one <laughs> it's not it's not that kind of game you can't get away with it you know right right and i just the the reason for mentioning assassin's creed on a list like this even though it was pretty successful and pretty well received is just because i feel like in hindsight people have forgotten really what it brought to the table and that is important to me because uh, i felt it was very important to gaming yeah people look back on in retrospect to the first assassin's creed and it's like oh that's before the series became really really good and really really popular yeah yes that's that's where i'm ending it i think we covered the generation pretty well what would you say guys yeah games Who's tired? Long generation, lots of years, lots of games. All right, so we're done with it now, right? (laughs) No, no, we actually. I have ten more. Hold on. Let me get my list back up. I have ten more. The most properly rated games of the generation. (laughs) 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 The most properly rated. (laughs) Yes. No. Never. So we we do have a bunch more podcasts coming up leading up to the next generation of games where we'll be talking about the current generation, the seventh generation, um, much like this podcast and the previous one. I'm not going to spoil the topics. You'll have to find out next time. But until then, please rate and review and subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, Come visit Gamernode.com. We've got plenty of articles going up. One particular series that we're working on is the Games of the Generation series, where we'll talk about individual games, kind of much like we've done today, um, that were excellent in their own right for whatever reason, and why they stand out in gaming history. Um, so we're going to have a bunch of those, along with all of our podcasts and our normal review and, and news and preview coverage. Um, so yeah, keep it here. And we will talk to you next time.